Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The word of the Lord. From the epistle of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking of different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of the tongues. All things, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best wine till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. 
good to be with you all today. Hope you're doing well and staying warm. I walked in here uh, this week for something, check in on something in the building, and uh, saw the uh, catering company sitting around their desks, which are usually out here in the middle, uh, and they were all <laughs> in their coats, freezing. They had space heaters and fans, kind of, and I was like, oh, what's going on in here? <laughs> and they said, our, our heater broke. And uh, um, I didn't really have the sense in the moment to ask them, well, do you think it'll be fixed by Sunday? <laughs> so I'm thankful by God's grace that it is uh, fixed this morning, and we are warm and toasty in here. Uh, we are in this season that I mentioned of epiphany. Epiphany, like you may have heard this word in a different context, when we have a big idea, we go, ooh, aha, I had an epiphany. Um, it's a season of light going out, of God's revelation going out into the world. And um, I want to talk for a minute about our, the culture that we find ourselves in. Um, we're in a bit of a dilemma in our culture as it's currently transitioning. Christianity has been the majority faith of our nation since the beginning, okay? Um, that's just the reality. Originally, there was some struggle, if you look at our country's history, with what kind of Christianity we were going to be. There was a variety of different kinds. But we mostly agreed that this would be Christian, okay? And yet, over the centuries, the world has gotten a lot smaller, hasn't it? Uh, when my parents were young, living in the Midwest in the United States, um, Buddhism was something that you read about in books, <laughs> Right? It was something that was distant, far away. Um, you didn't have a neighbor who was Buddhist in their town. The same was true with Hinduism, with Islam. Um, in my upbringing, as the church began to see the world shifting, I don't know about you, but my experience was the church got really defensive and has gotten really defensive. We've been worried about culture. We've been worried about culture changing. We've been worried about all these kind of things. We still see this today, that I grew up in a kind of church culture that was afraid about losing a Christian society. We have to cling on to that at all costs. So we spent lots and lots of time in the church trying to teach people how to defend the faith and defend the faith appropriately. There's nothing wrong with defending the faith, but, but it got to a point where it was very fear-based. It's very much building a fortress to try to defend ourselves from the outsiders, from the others. A lot of um, my early ministry was spent in youth ministry and college ministry. And a lot of those ministries tend to be built on parents <laughs> who are really afraid of what's going to happen to their kids and that their kids are going to lose the faith. So there's an anxiety and there's a fear and that fear caused much of the church, still by far Christianity being the majority religion in the United States today, but, but many of us feeling the need to beat people of other religions over the head with the Bible, <laughs> to defend ourselves, to convince, right, to prove. So many churches have built fortresses, have told their kids that this is the way the world works, and have tried to teach them in the most rigid way possible thinking that that will build the fortress high enough. That will keep things from falling down. That will keep them to hold on to their faith. In my experience in youth ministry and college ministries, the story went like this over and over again, that a child then goes to college. They've had this fortress mentality they've built up. They have an atheist professor who challenges them. <laughs> and then in one class session <laughs> or one conversation, they're faced with a dilemma. Either I drop this faith altogether I accept this truth that I'm learning, or I hold on to my faith with white knuckles and I reject all truth from the outside. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody? Okay, a few of us, right? Today, that existential tension that I'm describing doesn't have to come from an atheist professor. It can come from a podcast or a TED Talk, right? I've spent much of our ministry trying to communicate that there is another way, that, that it is possible to be fully intellectually engaged, to value the contributions and life of people of other faith perspectives, and at the same time hold a robust Christian faith. I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that this perspective is actually more true to the Christian faith because it views everybody as made in the image of God and all truth as God's truth. But along with this dilemma has come with this question of how do we live our faith and talk about our faith in public? How do we do this? How do we engage other people? Because so many of us have been taught this defensive posture, this proving posture. If anybody says anything other than, the, the, than what we've learned, then we have to be defensive and we have to be reactive. We have to respond in this kind of strong and rejectionary kind of way. But So I think what it causes many of us who grew up in the faith, many of us who are more aware of these dynamics I'm talking about, to just think that, well, maybe faith is just a private thing that we shouldn't really talk about. Maybe the Christian faith is just personal. Maybe it doesn't have as much to say about the society at large. Um, Maybe we just don't talk about it to the people we know who aren't Christians. Or if we let it slip that we go to church or we have church friends, quickly we just make it sound like, well, this is personal, It's a personal choice for me. It's a little thing I do on the side. It's a little addition to my life. It's not a story that has something to say about the world. So we fall into one of these two traps. We either get into this rejectionary kind of thing that many of us that grew up in more conservative traditions have, or we get to this place where we go, well, faith is just this inspirational private thing that I do, and it doesn't really matter in the public sphere. Well, the texts that we're confronted with today are very public texts. They're out front kind of texts. They're talk about your faith and display your faith kind of texts. They insist we can't be silent. And they also give us a framework for that public faith, namely that public faith is always built on love, always. It always starts with love. I can't help but think about um, tomorrow, um, we, in our culture, we celebrate the man, a man whose faith was very public a preacher who couldn't be silent, and this led him to stand up to injustice and prejudice, Um, a modern-day prophet in many ways. And I think about that as I'm thinking through this text. Many of you know um, a bit of my story that um, as a a kid, I began to read a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I grew up in a a church that was very diverse, church background that was very diverse, and uh, began to really uh, value the work of Dr. King and read a lot about him even in elementary school, and then learned his I Have a Dream speech. (laughs) And I used to say that every Monday, uh, or every uh, Martin Luther King Day, every year at our church. And uh, it kind of became part of who I am. And so tomorrow is especially um, special in some ways. In our Isaiah 62 text that we read, um, the prophet says it is for Jerusalem's sake that God will not keep silent. He will not rest. So he says, in other words, God can't be silent. He won't be silent. And the reason for that is for the people of God because the people of God are created to shine like the dawn. We've called the sermon today illumined because we are created to shine, that we're to be a people who are liberated and free. 
And the text today say, and this text specifically, that the nations are supposed to see that. So when God does something in his people, that is for the nations to see. They're going to see this reality that's happened. And the prophet Isaiah indicates that Israel's vindication will be seen by the pagan nations. So something has happened in the people of Israel. There's been a vindication, there's been a salvation, and that will be shown to the nations. And then God says he has changed their name. So there's an exchange that happens here. There is one thing and then it's traded for another thing. So where it says things like, you shall no, no more be termed forsaken and your land desolate. You shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. These are all, if you notice in the text, all of those words are capitalized and it's because they're actual Hebrew names. Okay, so when we say desolate and we say my delight is in her, married, forsaken, like all of these names are actual Hebrew names. So he's saying no longer is your name this, your name is now this. Um, we don't really name kids as much for their literal meanings anymore <laughs> as we used to. We kind of tend to name kids for um, how it sounds, uh, how the name kind of sounds, if it sounds pretty or if it sounds nice or if it sounds strong or something like that. But it used to be that um, a name was really carried with it a meaning. It was like a prophecy over a child. It was who they were supposed to be. So God is saying here, because of my salvation that I've given you, your name's gonna change. Your identity's gonna change. And the nations are going to know that. Also, Isaiah employs this metaphor of marriage. So he says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So marriage is a significant metaphor in scripture. We see it all throughout uh, scripture. It's the image of two things being brought together. It's often this image of wholeness, of rightness. But it's important to say this up front. Let me say this. That doesn't mean that marriage is the goal for everyone. Okay, let me, I want you to hear me say this. The Bible was written in times and in places where the societal goal was marriage. That was the goal for everybody. That was kind of the dream. Marriage meant wholeness and rightness. The marriage metaphor is beautiful and it's important, but it's not the most helpful metaphor for everyone. And I get that this morning. So when we talk on and on about this image of marriage, okay, I don't want those of you who aren't married to think that there is somehow less than if you're not married, okay? This is written in a particular culture and time. Um, if you're not married today and you look at this passage, which makes marriage look like the ultimate goal, it might limit your ability to really hear what's going on. But I wanna challenge you in this. Don't just give up on the metaphor. The metaphor is still important. Throughout church history, a large number of the saints, if you study their lives, a large number of the saints chose singleness instead of being married. It wasn't that they rejected marriage or they thought marriage was bad but they believed themselves called to be wedded to God and wedded to his church, okay? Committed to him and to her in a specific way. So earthly marriage is simply a signpost of God's desire for heaven and earth to come together, for God's love to meet earth, for the world to come together. So those of us who are married, we can celebrate our marriages as a sign of that reality that we would live and love one another in such a way that we would point to God's love for the world, for heaven and earth coming together. Those of you that are married, I hope you hear that today. That's what marriage is for. It's a signpost of that reality. But none of us should forget what the signpost is there for. 
that it's not just a sign in and of itself. It's a sign of God's love for all of creation. So Isaiah wants us to see here that God is the one who makes broken things whole, empty things full. So those places where we feel like our name is desolate, that that's our name. Some of you may be here today and you feel like, it's like my name is desolate, right? Nothing goes right for me. Many of you have never said that before in your life. Or maybe you feel like your name is unsuccessful. Just never been as successful as I thought I would be. Maybe you feel like your name is ugly or not smart enough. Maybe you feel like your name is if only. (laughs) If only I had this break in my life. If only this thing would have worked out. God has taken that name and he has replaced it with a new name. That you are now the one whom God delights in that you are something different and someone different than you were before. And the prophet says that the nations will see that identity shift that has happened in us. Our first Corinthians passage is interesting. Um, We have this discussion on spiritual gifts. And Paul wants the church in Corinth, that's who he's writing to, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, to understand that spiritual gifts are not just private spiritual experiences, okay? Uh, They're always connected to the church and they come from the same spirit. So that's what he wants us to see. And we all receive different spiritual gifts. Now, anytime we start talking about spiritual gifts and there's a bunch of people from a variety of different Christian backgrounds in the room, things get kind of (laughs) tense. People start thinking about, okay, what are we talking about spiritual gifts here? And I'm aware of that tension. I'm aware of that reality. But let me tell you how I read this. I believe in the activity of spiritual gifts today. I believe that. I believe that the Holy Spirit is active and working and moving in the world. I believe that God gives us gifts to participate in that movement. I believe in the gifts that Paul lists here. I believe in miracles, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, all the things that Paul describes here. I believe in those things. And I also believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are so broad and so diverse that they're way beyond even what Paul lists here, okay? So I know people that have the gift of poetry, of hospitality, of organization. I think I said to our group here at one point, I said, hey, does anybody have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to organize the tubs in the back room? Because we need that anointing. I think whenever I think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, if any of you have ever read or seen the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story, When I read those for the first time, there's this kind of random character who seems like he doesn't fully fit with the story unless you really think about it. Um, And that's Father Christmas, Santa Claus. Like, like it's this story about Aslan, who's this redeemer, and it's this beautiful story. And then um, you just hear this phrase that it's always winter in Narnia and never Christmas, you know, if you've ever heard that before. And then one of the signs that Aslan is on the move is that Father Christmas shows up and he gives out Christmas presents. (laughs) And you're sitting there going, what? Like, what does this have to possibly do with the story? Well, I think Lewis has Father Christmas as an image of the Holy Spirit here, that he is the giver of gifts, that he's the one who gives these diverse gifts for the people of God to use them in the world, okay? So why does Paul mention these particular gifts? 
Why, if he has all these different spiritual gifts in mind, why mention these ones like, that are so controversial, like prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues and all these kind of things? Why? Well, we don't know for sure. And there are a few other lists in the, in the New Testament. And so we have significant overlap with this list in the other list. But I wonder if the reason why Paul mentions these is because these were the gifts that the Corinthians really valued. These were the gifts that the Corinthian church really pursued and were interested in. These were the ones they chased after. These were the most highly valued gifts. We have reason to believe that the Corinthians liked ecstatic things. They liked experiences. They liked these things that were powerful and big. They liked to see people perform. They liked teachers who would, could tickle their ears and create experiences for them. They liked powerful expressions of faith. So nothing like the world today, right? And that's what tongues and prophecy and these things do. They appear strong and powerful and otherworldly and mysterious, okay? So you can see why the Corinthians would cling on to these gifts. These are the ones we want. But the Holy Spirit is not just the one who gives powerful gifts. The Spirit is the one who always brings something unexpected, something we never would have expected. Throughout the letters to the Corinthians, Paul is trying to convince them that the church of Jesus is different from all the other religions they've practiced. All the other pagan religions that value performance, that value these ecstatic experiences, the Christian faith is different from that. It's not just about a powerful experience. It's not just about a special gift or a special insight. This is new creation. It's something altogether different. The Christian faith doesn't just stand with all the other pagan um, religions and it just happens to be the best one. No, in Jesus, we've been giving some, given something altogether different, altogether unique. Paul wants to remind them that it's not about the gift, it's about the spirit who gives the gift. And that spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ. So there's one spirit, Paul says, who gives these gifts. There's not a bunch of little holy spirits out there and you get one of them that's a little bit better and more exciting than I get and all these kind of things. That's not how it works. It's one spirit who gives the gifts. Today, we might need to say the same thing. The church is not an inspirational self-help club. That's not what we're called to. It's not a shopping mall, purveyors of religious goods and services. It's not the church. The church is unlike anything else in our world. And if all the gifts come from the same spirit, we ought to think about ourselves that way. The church has divided so many times over the years because of these kinds of verses. There are whole denominations that some of them believe in some of the gifts on here, but they believe in them slightly different than their other friends. And so they decide to split the church into two different denominations, which then split into four, which kind of go on. We have something like 40,000 Christian denominations now, right? So, and I think part of this is because all of us want to be part of the right church, don't we? The right interpretation, the perfect interpretation. We want to be part of the church that has it all together, that practices our faith perfectly. And if our church is right, well, that means that your church is, 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 kind, of, is, is kind of wrong, right? But what if we thought about churches and denominations as having spiritual gifts? not just individuals, right? I grew up in a church where we practiced a lot of the gifts mentioned here by Paul. 
They were openly practiced and upfront. But many of the churches in my tradition lacked significant biblical teaching, okay, for example. So we had these gifts and we did these things as, you know, as Paul kind of described, and yet we kind of struggled with our interpretation of the Bible, some of the churches. Um, there are some churches I know that are really good at biblical teaching. They dissected the Bible and they've read it in a significant and accurate kind of way. And yet they have become so wedded to their own interpretation, they've separated themselves from every other um, denominational expression because they're the right ones. And so unity of the church is not really emphasized, right? We need each other. We need the broader body of Christ. We need that. I love it that I have the opportunity that because of the kind of church that we are, because of the background experience I had, that we can go into a variety of Christian denominations and celebrate and value what those groups bring to the table. That we can celebrate and value that it's all from one spirit who gives us those gifts. That doesn't mean we don't recognize that there are churches that go off the reservation. That doesn't mean that we can't recognize that there are some things we can critique about each you know, different um, kind of tradition, but we need each other. And this discussion about gifts and unity then leads, a lot of people forget this, we have chapter 12, and then it goes right into chapter 13, speaking about love, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the foundation of all of it. All right, so what do spiritual gifts have to do with evangelism? Well, if we're gonna shine in a broken world, we need unity and we need to learn to love each other. That's, you know, the passage of scripture that they, they will know us by our love, right? They know us by how we love one another. How can we love the world if we're so busy chasing our own gifts and not seeking the spirit who's the giver of gifts. Okay, our gospel reading today is John chapter two. And this story is so wonderful on so many levels. In fact, this is the story that I preach at most of the weddings that I do. Um, I love this story, it's beautiful. Um, we see here Jesus in a small town. The town was so small that when there was a big wedding, it was just assumed that everybody was invited. So Mary's invited, Jesus is invited, his disciples are invited. Even though they may not know the bride and groom, they're still invited. Y'all come, right? We've got a small town wedding. This is what we're doing. Um, and running out of wine was a big deal. So it wasn't just an inconvenience. It was a social disaster and a social disgrace, all right? Like running out of wine was like, you totally didn't prepare. This is also bad luck. Like this is not good. I told um, our, a few people at our planning meeting this week, about a story that I had from two Easter Sundays ago. I think a few of you are here. Not many of you are here, but a few of you are here. Our church has changed a lot since then. Um, but a couple Easter Sundays ago, um, we were preparing for Easter. We had the service down. We had this like service timed out perfectly. We had exactly what we wanted to do. We were expecting a lot of guests. We had a choir that was gonna sing. We had a full band. We're like ready to go. Everything was, my sermon was like tuned, you know, I really had it all ready to go. And then um, there were just a few things besides the service that we forgot to think about. One of them is that we were going to provide fried chicken for everybody after service, okay? Which was in the back of my mind. That was a thing we were gonna do. I had called Kroger and had it set up and be ready to be picked up. And the night before I thought, oh, we're gonna have to get somebody to pick up that chicken. I thought, um, all right, I need to assign somebody when I first get there in the morning to go and get that fried chicken, all right? 
Well, I got there that morning and I got into preparing the service and how excited I was about the service and the choir and all these kind of things. So the service ends and I do what I normally do. I start talking to people and hanging out with people. And then I'm realizing, oh, we're supposed to eat something. Maybe I got hungry. <laughs> we're supposed to eat something. <laughs> I'm making Hannah like tense just talking about the story. Um, and, I, uh, and so I thought, okay, I forgot to send somebody to get the chicken. I can't ask anybody right now, so I'm gonna rush to my car and I'm gonna go pick up the chicken. Oh yeah, and I think we also need water bottles and paper plates and napkins, okay? <laughs> so I run and go get that and there's all these guests and all these visitors who are standing under a tent outside <laughs> waiting for this chicken and I'm fighting traffic to get back in there. All my mistake, you guys can feel the embarrassment that I felt in that moment, right? The kind of shame in a sense, shame may be too strong of a word, but that I felt. That's the closest that I've probably ever gotten. Now the service was great, by the way. Church service was awesome. It's probably the closest that I've ever gotten to something like this. This was way worse. Many Eastern cultures live with an honor-shame dynamic. And if you, bring, if you do something to bring shame on your family, that can actually last for generations. Imagine if my forgetting to bring the fried chicken lasted in my family for generations. So in addition to all the big picture things that we're about to discuss, this was an act of compassion on the, on the part of Jesus. He realizes the shame that's brought on this family. And this miracle is a simple act of compassion. Sometimes that's what Christian life boils down to. How am I to live simple acts of compassion in my day-to-day -day lives, in my day-to-day -day life? If you ever get confused about your faith, if you have doubts, if you wrestle with stuff, I wanna encourage you, keep serving people. Keep showing compassion. Keep loving. Let that guide you. Let that center you. In the midst of this act of compassion, in the midst of real life and real struggles and real shame, Jesus does something huge. John, the author of this gospel, tells us Jesus is telling us something about who he is. John calls these signs, and he says this is the first sign that Jesus does. John's gospel is kind of different than the other gospels. He's not telling everyone the story of Jesus quite as explicitly. He's not going in chronological order. John is pointing us to who Jesus is throughout the gospel. So John tells us this is the first sign. This is the first clue that he gives us about who Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding. It's a celebration. It's, I think it's kind of cool to see Jesus, God in the flesh, participating in a celebration. We've seen, we see here that a relaxed Jesus, <laughs> a Jesus who's having fun and partying and celebrating. Maybe Jesus has had a little bit of wine, maybe more than a little bit of wine. There are other times where Jesus is more serious, okay? But John paints this picture of a party. And this is the first miracle that Jesus performs. John wants us to see something new is happening here. In fact, if you read John's gospel, John chapter one um, looks a lot like Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible. So in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They look very similar to each other. John chapter two looks a lot like Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two, God is present at a wedding of Adam and Eve, the coming together of Adam and Eve. The world flourishes in Genesis chapter two and it's fruitful. Here in John chapter two, Jesus is new creation. He is at a wedding and he is providing new fruitfulness. 
new wine. And then there's a joke at the end of the passage. John throws in this joke. The master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside. Hey, buddy, come here. Says, everybody brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine later after the guests have had too much to drink. Okay. But you've saved the best wine until now. Okay. Okay, it's not ha-ha funny, but it's, it's funny, okay? It's kind of this kind of jab. Oh, I see what you did there. I know it wasn't intentional, but I see what you did there. So it's kind of a joke to the bridegroom. Where's this stuff been all along? But it's also a way of saying, and a way for John to say that Jesus, the wine that Jesus brings is better than anything that's gone before. What Jesus brings to our lives is better than anything we've ever experienced. And it's altogether different than anything we've experienced. What is a miracle? And what are the miracles of Jesus? There are some who might have convinced us that these little miracle stories that we see in the gospel are just illustrations. They're fanciful legends and they help us understand better the teachings of Jesus, okay? And still, there are others that might say that these miracles are just kind of lead-ups to the really important business of Christ's death. They have no import in and of themselves. But one of the things we see happening here, and really in all miracles, is we see the intersection of heaven and earth. We see the coming together of God's space and our space. That's kind of what a miracle is, that we see a signpost, we see a glimpse of God's world and our world coming together. And this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let heaven come to earth. Let heaven invade earth. N.T. Wright says that heaven and earth are indeed two separate places, but they're separated by chicken wire. That's what he says, (laughs) okay? We see the activity of heaven all over the place in our space. Something is happening in these miracles. We are seeing the bringing about of new creation. We are seeing something different and something new. Wright says of this story, it's about transformation. The different dimension of reality that comes into being when Jesus is present and when, as Mary tells the servants, people do whatever Jesus tells them. We are called to hear Mary's urgings today. Do what that guy says. (laughs) Follow that guy and he will lead you to something that you've never experienced before. Life is different when we trust in Jesus. Things happen that we can't explain. And I'm not talking about just things that we would consider miracles, like healing, financial provisions, things like that. I believe those things happen, but that's not all I'm talking about here. We're also talking about the transformation that happens to our ordinary lives when they're submitted to Jesus. When we do as Mary says, and we do whatever he says to do, a transformation happens. Our weaknesses can become something beautiful and strong. Our suffering can become something beautiful. The early church following Jesus with all of their hearts began to suffer significantly at the hands of the Roman Empire. They were oppressed, they were beaten, they were killed. And yet something weird happened. In the midst of persecution, the church grew and thrived. And it led to this phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What to the world looks like defeat, being dominated by a more powerful empire, 
that thing that seems broken to the world, that seems defeated in the world, in the hands of Jesus is something altogether different. It's new creation. Those places in your life where you have your greatest wound, um, that brokenness that you experienced in your past, that thing that your parents said about you that you've never been able to forget, um, that place may be and is the place and the places where God's work shines through the most. The broken pieces are the ones that make the most beautiful mosaics. Something broken is different in the hands of Jesus. God takes the water of chaos, the raw materials of creation, and he brings about the best new wine. This wedding is a foretaste of the future heavenly feast spoken in Revelation 21. There's a day coming when his will will fully be done on earth as it is in heaven when we will taste the best wine, the wine of new creation. In fact, this meal that we receive now is a bit of that meal here today. It's a breaking in of that meal here in this place in this time. There will be a future day when wrongs will be made right. And I wanna suggest that's a common longing. Everybody you meet in your life longs for that day. Everybody longs for a day when the world is made right. We just all have different perspectives on how that's going to happen. Some religions say this will only come after we die and we leave the world behind, okay? Others say that we can achieve that utopia now if we just learn to transcend the everyday, to live above it. There's also a secular kind of hope like this. It's captured in John Lennon's Imagine, right? You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, okay? You may... Um, I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. There's this longing that one day this can all be achieved if we all just learn to live together in peace and harmony. And of course, that's not a bad dream. That rumors the Christian hope. There's another secular hope that this day of utopia will finally arrive when we're able to achieve the heights of technology and progress and prosperity. We'll get there someday. But the Christian hope is different than all of that. The Christian hope says our hope is in our God. And this God did not consider us and our world too far gone, too far away. He stepped into the chaos, into the brokenness, into the discord, and has brought about new creation in Jesus Christ. The Christian hope comes about through self-giving, through brokenness, through weakness. Jesus gives himself for the world. This miracle at Cana ultimately points forward to the resurrection. This is what God can make out of crucifixion. This is what God can make out of our sin. This is what God can make with the raw and messy and broken materials of our world. So what does it mean for us to live in that reality today? It's a great concept, great story. What does that mean? Well, who do you know in your life who needs to be needs to know that they're no longer defined by their old name. <laughs> I want you to think about the people in your work, people at school with you, your neighbors, who you can just tell that their identity is formed by something, and that thing has not led them in the best places. Um, they need to know that they're no longer defined by that thing. Who do you know that's been listening for God's voice, and they're waiting for something loud and miraculous? 
They're waiting for one of these big gifts, these big kind of things of God. How might God use you to be his whisper of love even in the midst of their pain? Who do you know who's experienced great shame? Who's run out of wine? Like the voice of Mary, how might you gently nudge them to do whatever that guy says? Our job today is to proclaim that the future world has come in Jesus. That we see that day that we all long for, that we all hope for, that somehow in Jesus, that future world has broken in today. It's here now. And we're to live as new creation people, people of the new wine, pointing to that day when, when that, that thing that's happened now will be everywhere. We'll see it fully. And because of that, we're given a new name instead of the old one. Because of that, we are all given the same spirit. Because of that, we're given something we never would have expected. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story that we're part of. This story that is radically different than anything we've experienced or anything we've seen in our world. In a world that's so defined by a certain kind of success and performance, a certain kind of domination and power that you've offered us a different way. Lord, our prayer today is that we would be the people of the new wine, the people who live this new creation in our world. That when we experience people who are downtrodden, who are, feel shameful, we would be able to say, this is not the end of your story. As Isaiah said, your name is no longer forsaken. You are the one in whom God delights. Lord, may we be those people. May we carry this into our world. In Jesus' name, amen.